This is Chris. Welcome to episode 221 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I can already tell it's going to be one of those days. Um, I've been sitting here staring at my Skype screen, trying to figure out how to start recording for like two minutes now. Um, you know, I, I'll open either Audacity when I'm doing something by myself, or Skype when I'm with a partner, and uh, I, for some reason I opened Skype this morning, and I'm just staring at it like, how do, how do I do this? How do I, how do I figure this out? And finally, I'm like, oh, wait, I'm in the wrong program. So, close that out, opened Audacity, and, uh, well, here we be. Um, it's uh, it's going to be one of those days. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, we have a really decent book to look at today, so uh, it's not all bad. It's not all bad. So, let's get into it. This is Sword, Volume 2, Number 6, August 2021 cover date, and uh, I'm kind of feeling bad for Sword. Um, Sword, I mean, despite any... Any issues I might have with uh, the way Mr. Ewing uh, presents himself on social media, um, he's a good writer, and I have to admit that. And the thing about Sword is that we're six issues in, and I think they've only had, like, two issues where they haven't been tied up in a crossover. We had three issues of King in Black, and now we have Hellfire Gala. Um, I'm looking forward to this book actually getting an opportunity to sort of breathe on its own. Hopefully... Hopefully that's soon. Well, actually, it won't be soon because I think we got Guardians of the Galaxy stuff coming up. So, oh well. Well, uh, well, I guess we'll take it as it comes. Um, anyway, the story is called "This Is What Comes Next," written by Al Ewing, art by Valerio Shidi, colors Marty Gracia, letters VCs Ariana Mar, designs Tom Muller, head of X Sigman, edits Bisa Wojcikowski, cover price four dollars, on sale June twenty three of twenty twenty one. Now we open with a full page of Captain America staring into the night sky toward Mars. Now, we already saw a couple of conversations between Captain America and Cyclops throughout this event, right? Uh, first, chronologically anyway, it was the second actual conversation we read, but chronologically speaking, it was a couple of days before the gala, and uh, Cap and Scott met at the old Xavier School to discuss, you know, what's going on with Arako? Is this a permanent thing? What's, uh, what's the situation here? Then, in Marauders, after the fireworks, we had Cap talking to Cyclops again, and he he sort of alluded to the fact that while they might have solved one problem, they might have made things worse. So uh, that'll all remain to be seen here. There is a, a bit of skepticism in the air, though. Uh, worth noting, the time is 1.10 a.m. Now, off to the side, we see Henry Peter Gyrick walking with Vindicator, or Guardian, or whatever the hell we're calling James McDonald Hudson right now. Now, Mac is very off-put over the terraformation of Mars. He's, like, beside himself. Does not, uh, you know, can't compute in his mind that the mutants just did this. Says it's a too huge a step forward. Uh, 
Now, Gyrick suggests that maybe Max stop thinking of the mutants as his pals. And he questions so much of what the mutants are doing here, and... I mean, on the face of it, he's not exactly wrong. He then asks um, Mac if he'd ever heard of something called Orcus. Huh. Now, it's worth noting they're walking right past Captain America when he asks this question, and Cap appears to overhear this bit. So, uh, perhaps Orcus is now on Captain America's radar. Then, Doctor Doom approaches Cap, and he asks, you know, uh, you know, Penny for your thoughts. And Cap's like, you know, well, well I'm shocked. He then turns to Doom and suggests that uh, Doom probably views shock as being weak. But, on the contrary, Doom actually respects the heck out of Captain America. And he even goes as far as to equate them as both being the faces of their nations. You know, Doom of Latveria, Cap of America. Cap then tells Doom the story of his first week out of the ice. He explains that those were dark days for him. He had to reconcile the fact that, you know, A, he's a man out of time. And B, everyone he knew and loved uh, is no longer there. He says that Tony Stark showed him a video of man walking on the moon. And uh, this, I mean, this kind of bumps Cap's thawing considerably. It's not 1964 anymore. Uh, and I'm certainly uh, sure they're not suggesting that the Avengers were formed in 1969. This is probably way ahead in the future. A nebulous year that we don't need to realize, really zero in on, which is uh, smart. Now, Cap saw this as a moment of hope for mankind, you know, the one big step, right? Uh, he understood that uh, while he lost so much during his decades in a deep freeze, um, people, you know, while he was asleep, they strived to better humanity and to progress, right? And uh, Cap says that he asked Tony if uh, they'd ever been to Mars at this point, and uh, Tony smirked and changed the subject. But now, the mutants have gone and done it. Now, all the while, humanity just stood by and watched it go down by the sidelines. Now, Cap is disappointed here, and this is really, really an excellent point, and uh, definitely kudos to Ewing for, uh, for addressing this. Captain America is not so much scared. He's not so much even angry. He just has this real, like, Pollyanna-ish view here. He wishes that the mutants and the humans might have worked together to do such a thing, to take that giant leap together. It's a wonderful, wonderful point. Uh, you know, the mutants, they I mean, this is all a, a gala. This is a fashion event. Um, they're so aloof right now, they're marginalizing all of humanity. They're, you know, they're planetary neighbors, right? Uh, they're uh, cohorts on this, on, on this planet. And I'm not 100% sure if this is hubris by the mutants or just not caring. You know, like, they are just aloof. This is, you know, they're, <laughs> they only worry about themselves at this point. Doom and Cap then part company, with Doom suggesting that sometime soon, Captain America might have a need for him. And he promises, when that day comes, not to make uh, that time into a gala performance. And uh, your metal mouth to God's ears, Vic, because we don't need another one of these. Double-page spread of roll call and cred. Our characters include Brand, Manifold, Frenzy, Wizkid, Magneto, and Doom. We resume comic content up at Sword Station 1's peak. Here, Abigail Brand and Frenzy are addressing a whole slew of boring intergalactic diplomats here. And they're both in their Carnation Abominations, which, for some reason, has Brand wearing an eye patch. And I, I get that they're going for a pirate look here, but why in all hells would you, like, cover up an eye for this? It puts you at a severe disadvantage, doesn't it? Anyway, Brand informs the Dips that there is now a Sword Station 2, which they're calling the Keep, and everyone is welcome to visit. 
She then says a few words about uh, their new Iraqi neighbors. Um, then one of those horseheads from Power Pack asks why any of them should care about this, and uh, I kind of feel the same way. Uh, info page. It's a roll call of the diplomats here. Uh, some of them are familiar to me. Some of them are not. Um, that isn't to say that any of these are new characters, uh, per se, because you guys know me. Uh, if it's a space book, I'm probably not going to check it out. So for all I know, these characters have been around for 30, 40, 50 years. So let's get into it. Representing the Galactic Rim Collective is Orbis Stellaris, and it looks like a uh, metal ball. Just floating in the sky, floating in the air. Representing Great Chimelia is Nimbus Sternhoof. And of course, this is our horse head. Um, representing the House of Regal, or Regal, is Menticle, a mutant and telepath. Representing the Zinrix Empire is Empress Kuga, which is, and she's listed as an ally of Krakoa. Representing the Intergalactic Empire of Wakanda is Retho, who is a... Uh, Asherah's son. Um, I'm sure those names probably mean something to somebody. Just not me. Uh, representing the Kree Skrull Alliance is Pybok, and we know him. He works for us, so that's uh, nobody new. Uh, representing the Shi'ar Empire is Smasher. Of course, that's Sam Guthrie's horrible wife, and we unfortunately know her too. Uh, she's listed as an ally of Krakoa, or the Shi'ar are. Uh, representing the Astrologers of Spartax is Peter Quill, Star-Lord. Um who for some reason is wearing antlers on his head. Perhaps he's petitioning to get into Hickman's next project, because we know he loves boring characters with antlers. Representing the Utopian Kree is Novar, and this is, of course, Grant Morrison's uh, Marvel Boy. He's listed as the founder of the Utopian Kree Splinter Movement. Whatever that is. I'm guessing that's probably something from the fallout of Empire, since the Kree and the Skrull have an alliance. Uh, representing the Earth, Sorta is uh, Nova, uh, Nova Prime, Richard Ryder, the, uh, the one from back in the long ago, not, uh, not Sam Alexander or whatever his name is. We jump back to comics, and the boring diplomats talk about the whole Mars thing. Now, they rightly mention that everything Krakoa has done up to this point has been kind of unimpressive. So, finally, somebody realizes that we're in the friggin' Marvel Universe, where, I mean, broken record time, say it with me, Literal gods walk the Earth, and alien invasions occur every 20 minutes. So, maybe the terraformation of a planet is uh, not quite as big a deal as uh, we're supposed to be led to believe. Uh, you know, considering this is the Marvel Universe, every single planet should be uh, should be populated and uh, you know colonized at this point. But it's not. Brand then introduces a Carnation Abomination Whiz Kid who gives the geeks a lecture on Mysterium. Now, of course, we know Mysterium is uh, that stuff that that sword gets from wherever they go. <laughs> we saw we saw a little bit of a mission uh, trying to procure some of that back in Sword Number One, and it was either last issue or the issue before that where we saw that they just have a tremendous stockpile of this stuff. Now, we'd heard somewhat recently, probably in an earlier issue of Sword itself, here that there is a big time cosmic economic crisis going on. I'm not sure what the cause of that is, or if there actually was a cause to it. But whatever the case, S.W.O.R.D. has an answer for it, and it's Mysterium. Now, Mysterium is like a wonder metal second only to adamantium. It slices, it dices, it julians fries, it uh, conducts electricity, it's magnetic, it's radiation-proof, it's really just swell. Uh, Brand offers the diplomats 100 tons of the Mysterium each. Now, 
This is kind of setting an intergalactic gold standard on the back of Mysterium. So if I'm reading this right, Sword is offering like a new galactic currency of sorts, and Brand calls it Sol, S-O-L, like, you know, solar system, the, the, the sun. Now, I feel like this is certainly supposed to evoke a comparison to what Krakoa is doing with the miracle medicine on Earth, just on an intergalactic scale. Now, the mutants are the only ones who can make or provide both the miracle meds and the mysterium, and also, mutants don't exactly need either of them, so this is all being made to to dole out for favors, so certainly not out of the kindness of their heart. Now, the Wakandan diplomat tells Brand that they're, they're not about to take any charity. Uh, Smasher is all about it, though. Loves Mysterium, wants as much of it as she can get. Nova then pipes in, realizing exactly what this is. This Mysterium, it ain't a gift. It's not charity. What it is, is a bribe. And he asks what the catch is. Now, Brand does not deny this for a minute. Of course it's a bribe, and says uh, all they want in exchange for this, you know, bounty is acknowledgement. So, Soul will be the true financial system of the galaxy, and Arako will be recognized as the capital planet of the Soul system. Now, at this point, Dr. Doom arrives, and as you might imagine, he's none too happy about being left out of these proceedings. Now, after making fun of Peter Quill's stupid antlers, Doom asks, who speaks for humanity? You know, he looks at the representatives, right? We have one person for the Chimelians, one person for the Orb people. But Earth is different in that uh, it's hard to get one voice to represent this planet. Um, so he asks, who, who rules planet Araco? You know, who, who, is, who speaks for humanity? Who rules Araco? Who is the new king of Mars? Who speaks for Sol? And it's revealed here that Storm is the regent of Mars and the voice of Sol. It's kind of hard for me to uh, to reconcile that Araco would be cool with this. <laughs> um, seems a little bit weird, but uh, whatever. We knew Storm was doing something, and I guess this is what that something is. Uh, info page. We got Pybok here. He's reporting these events back to Emperor Hulkling of the Kree Scroll whatevers. Um, now, it looks like all of the diplomats accepted this offer, except for Wakanda, which is pretty much exactly what happened with the magic meds back in the while ago. Now, Sol is already the new credit of the galaxy, which seems pretty quick. I don't think the night's even over yet. Uh, Pybok suggests that Hulkling also accept this deal. He suggests that it might help smooth things over with Krakoa regarding the Wanda Maximoff situation. And uh, Wanda is Emperor Hulkling's mother-in-law, so it's uh, a little bit diplomatically dicey. Um, now, Hulkling agrees via a little jotted-down note at the bottom of this uh, report, uh, says he's not interested in going to war, and he suggests that maybe they play around a bit with their free sample of Mysterium and just, uh, you know, be cool, play it by ear. Back to comics, and it's 3.17 a.m., and the gala is all but done, but we are... Uh, we're back on the, on Mykonos here. Magneto, he sits alone with his helmet and a scotch, and he toasts to himself for all he's wrought. Now, this little, uh, you know, self-celebration is interrupted by something that was spoiled for me before I could uh, get the chance to read it. Before, actually, before most people could get a chance to read it, this was actually spoiled for me on social media the day before the issue came out, which is BS, <laughs> and absolutely sucks. Uh, if you were able to avoid this, I uh, I envy you. But Magneto is interrupted by the arrival of the Scarlet Witch. 
Now, she says she got Eric's invite, which uh, we might have saw in that info page over in Strange Academy number 5, so I now feel a little less silly for having paid $4 for that one page of, uh, of text in that book. Um, Magneto wishes that she could have been here to see the fireworks. Now, Wanda wanted to come, but couldn't bring herself to. After all, she is the pretender, and she is wildly hated by just about everyone. Magneto takes this opportunity to tell her the story of Anya. Now, doing a little bit of research, Anya was Magneto's daughter who appeared in a backup story in Classic X-Men number 12, August 1987 cover date. Stories called A Fire in the Night by Chris Claremont and John Bolton. Now, Anya, Magneto's daughter, dies in a fire set by a mutant-hating mob. And Magneto, despite trying, was unable to save her. Now, perhaps this is a parallel to Magneto actually saving Wanda from that unruly bunch back in the Silver Age flashbacks, which we've been discussing over in the Essentials program. Magneto then shares some of this story with Wanda and uh, compares his life now to his life then. Now, he's a great mutant hero, and he just helped to build a world. But even so, at this point, he still can't shake the feeling that, uh, that he failed his children. All. Of his children Wanda goes to say something But Magneto stops her Blood or not She will always be his daughter And he promises to make things right And then the two of them Dance us out of the issue Next episode is our penultimate gala-ing Thankfully (laughs) In uh, Way of X And uh, always, always love Way of X Cannot wait to read it And discuss it with you all Next time But for now Let's talk sword. I, I mentioned at the top of the show I, I kind of feel bad for this book in that it's always tied up in a event or a crossover. It just doesn't get adequate room to breathe here. And um, as such, uh, I feel like Ewing tried to um, expand the story of this of this series as well as tie into the gala as best as possible. Resulted in kind of a mixed bag. Because the parts that were focused on furthering Sword Story were... We were just being talked at, right? It's like, this is Mysterium, this is what it does, and, uh, you know, acknowledge us. And, I mean, I get that. And, and it makes sense for that to be the direction that it goes here. But I feel like... Uh, and, and I'm certainly not um, petitioning for decompression here. I don't want this to take up two or three issues, but... It felt a little bit too um, matter-of-fact, and it also felt a little bit too easy. And we talked last episode about the Terra Verdans in uh, Wolverine and how, I mean, it was just a wave of a hand and everything's fixed, everything's cool. There's no residual resentment, nothing nothing lingering. It was all tied up tidily in a bow, right? Here, I can't help but feel a very similar vibe. It's just like, here's Mysterium, it's the new, it's the new standard for... Uh, for, you know, commerce and, and the economy in the galaxy And uh, take it, you know, take it or don't um, And again, I'm certainly not advocating for this to be stretched out Any more than it needs to It's just uh, a little too neat and uh, tidy uh, Worth noting, I do appreciate the comparisons Between uh, Mysterium and the Magic Meds Something we've talked about since the start of this um, Sword series is that Abigail Brand has a similar but... Kind of different approach as uh, Xavier and Magneto, whereas uh, Krakoa is kind of looking at things on a micro level, just Earth, right? 
Sword is looking at things at a macro level. Galactic, you know. I do appreciate that, uh, you know, she's expanding the influence of Krakoa and of Sword on a much grander, like a an almost so too grand a stage. You can't even wrap your head around this stuff here. But uh, I definitely appreciate that. Um, the entire delivery, a little bit boring. Um you guys know me. If I see a bunch of interchangeable Marvel aliens, I can't help but to glaze over. It's certainly not a fault of the story. That's a that's a Chris problem um, from you know from the get go. Now, with the sword and space stuff out of the way, um, I absolutely loved the Earth stuff here. It was just a wonderful way to frame the issue here. We open with Cap and Doom having a really deep conversation. And asking or raising some points that uh, that I hadn't considered yet. Um, you know, we wonder how the uh, the greater Marvel universe views Krakoa and the X Men. And uh, while I'm not reading much outside of the X Men books, I'm not, I'm actually not reading anything outside of the X Men books at present. So I don't know if this comes up in passing in other books, or if this is you know if one of the first times that we're hearing about Captain America's. Um, Thoughts on Krakoa And um, I think I looked at everything on, on more of a uh, surface level You know, uh, the hu- humanity, the uh, greater superhero uh, population would just be like Okay, the mutants are being weird <laughs> You know, they're doing their own thing We'll just let them do it and we'll keep an eye on it Here, Cap mentions that, you know, more than anything He's disappointed that they're not working together now, I mean, that's a deep, deep topic here, and, I mean, it, it has roots back into the Silver Age. Over in the Essentials show, we uh, covered X-Men number 8, which was the first instance where mutants were feared and hated, you know, and, and it was a very, very dramatic shift and a very inorganic one at that. But, you know, it begs the question here, Cap's disappointed that they're not working together to make progress, but... Where were the Avengers when the X-Men were being, you know, held down and downtrodden and hunted and uh, and attacked for just being mutants here? Where were the Avengers? They were uh, really, you know, they weren't on TV saying, hey, leave the X-Men alone. They're they're good people. They were just kind of letting them do their thing here. It's, it's interesting because uh, I think if we go back to the Silver Age, into the Bronze Age, into the 80s and 90s, and uh, in the 2000s with uh, M-Day and Civil War and AVX, I think the X-Men would have loved to uh, to work together with uh, the Avengers and with humanity and, you know, make, make steps forward together. Now things are different. Now things are different. The X-Men, the mutants, they are very aloof. <laughs> they don't need humanity. They've... Uh, They've outgrown them in a lot of ways here, and Captain America is thinking, you know, this really should have been something we all did together. This should have been a, this should have been a victory for Earth, you know, for humanity, not just for Krakoa and the mutants. And I, I love that that you can you can sympathize with Cap, right? He is basically a saint, you know, walking uh, walking the streets of the United States. So um, it makes sense for him to have this sort of uh, feeling of disappointment. But then you look at it from the other side here, and it's like, well, where were the Avengers when the X-Men needed them? It's really neat stuff to consider. And um, seeing Cap and Doom together, having this civil and respectful conversation, um, I like it. I I like 
you know, Dr. Doom as like a tweener, you know, not exactly a good guy, not exactly a bad guy, just a guy who wields incredible political power and is brilliant and is a little bit uh, a little bit snarky, a little bit uh, you know, a little bit sarcastic. Uh, he's he's excellent and uh, Ewing just slaughters this scene. Um, also, we get a little bit of the Orcus build in the scene too, just as an aside. Such a wonderful flow. To the uh, scene, just it adds just a little bit, right? And we move things forward just a little bit. Really, really dug it. That, of course, takes us to our other framing sequence here at the end of the issue, where boy, I really, really wish this hadn't have been spoiled for me because this would have popped me big time. I've been waiting for a scene just like this from the get go, and here it was. Um, Scarlet Witch shows up on Krakoa. You know, taking uh, Magneto's invitation to heart, coming over to just check in. And while she couldn't bring herself to be there for the entire gala, did make sure to pop in at the end just to, uh, like I said, just check in. And I really, really liked this here. Um, what I like most about it, Magneto basically saying, blood or not, you'll always be my daughter. Because... I feel like up until now, that has been something that Marvel has really, really failed to present, you know. Family is what you make of it, right? I mean, it's not always the family you're born into. It's sometimes the family that you discover along the way. And Magneto, uh, Pietro, and Wanda, they'd been presented as a family for a very long time. I don't know about the Marvel sliding timescale. It could have been 20 minutes at this point. But uh, for us, it was decades of them being family. And just discovering that you are no longer, or you never were, blood-related doesn't make those feelings stop, does it? It doesn't erase shared experiences, doesn't erase feelings that you once had. It's a, it's a, it's a very superficial change, if anything. And uh, when Marvel did what they did, and you know, made Wanda and Pietro <laughs> inhumans or miracles or just plain humans that were... You know, hexed into thinking they were mutants or whatever the hell the uh, the Robinson explanation was over in the Scarlet Witch book. They they separated Magneto from them, and it was just like this, maybe not so much hostile, but a passive aggressive relationship where it's like everything was denounced. They're no longer even on like speaking terms, and that always rubbed me the wrong way because it really doesn't feel organic. It doesn't feel human. It doesn't feel natural, and. Uh, more kudos to Ewing, because Magneto has, uh, it's funny, we have Exodus, who is trying to, like, brainwash an entire, the entire youth of Krakoa into thinking that Scarlet Witch is the pretender, right? She's the pretender, she is the ultimate in evil uh, to, uh, to the young mutants here. And the topic of Wanda has come up a time or two to Magneto. Uh, notably in an earlier issue of Sword, where he's, uh, I think it was Sword number one, actually, where he's on board the peak, and uh, they're mentioning Wanda, and, uh, you know, how horrible she is, and uh, he kind of just, like, scoffs it off a bit. He's like, yes, yes, the pretender, yes, yes, I know. Doesn't really, doesn't really advocate for or against her, doesn't really say anything uh, judgmental, doesn't, you know, double down on, oh, yeah, Wanda's the worst, doesn't extol her as being anything but the pretender, but just like kind of, yes, yes, I, I know that uh, this is what they need me to say, so I'm going to say it. And that point is really driven home here 
in that uh, Magneto says he wants to fix things. He's gonna he's gonna do whatever's in his power to uh, fix the situation, which makes me wonder exactly what he uh, what he has in mind. Overall, a a wonderful scene, uh, a scene that we've been waiting for for a long time. Just a beautiful scene, uh, drawn uh, lovingly, and uh, I come away from it uh, very very positive. So more of this, please, for sure uh, A little bit less of the space stuff A little bit more of the human stuff Because Ewing can uh, absolutely murder it with the dialogue here This is this is good stuff, heartfelt And I mean, we do talk a lot about the nebulous um, quality of heart in writing And yeah, this has it This has it So uh, if you're not reading Sword, I'd recommend it It's uh, If you can get past the space stuff I, I try to <laughs> get past the space stuff But uh the interpersonals are are wonderful So definitely really digging this one uh, Can't wait for more And uh, I think that's all I have to say about the issue But before we go, we have Mailbag So let's get into it We're going to start with Damien Who's talking about New Mutants number 18 now Damien says uh, My main question throughout this arc is Who is the Shadow King? Is he the cosmic entity that was meant to be behind everything In Claremont's reality? Or is he just a Amal Farouk? I don't understand how the characters see him. Why is Scout the only character who thinks he's sinister? Well, we do get a little bit more on that in New Mutants 19. We heard that uh, Krakoa is actually somehow repelling the psychic entity of the Shadow King. So basically what we're seeing here is pure Farouk. And I'm by no means a uh, Shadow King aficionado or expert, fake-ass or otherwise, so... I don't know if this might be the first time we're seeing him just as him, you know? Um, this could be a very interesting turn of events here. I'm looking forward to, especially after what we saw in New Mutant Summer 19, uh, I think we do have a whole lot of fallout that we're going to be dealing with as it pertains to, uh, to Amal Farouk. Damien continues, That's a lot more than one main question. I was obviously lying in my first sentence. New Mutants has completely drawn me in. Just like in Kota, Vita Ayala has structured a book around a series of mysteries. I also think they've done a great job on building on other writers' concepts. The use of the Crucible here is case in point. Ayala does so much more with it than Hickman did, really delving into the hierarchical... (laughs) Easy for me to say. The hierarchical structure of Krakoa. Seemingly, if you're a headliner, you can do what you want, and if you're a background character, you're just meant to go with the flow. Agreed 100%. Yeah, this really feeds into the... uh, into the discussion that we've been having about a uh, like a caste system or a class system on Krakoa here, where the human passing characters are uh, well, they're free to do and dictate and do whatever they want, whereas characters like uh, the Shadow Kings or regulars are, like you said, just expected to go with the flow. You know, they they can't petition for a for a cru- crucibling in hopes that they'll come back in a uh, more aesthetically pleasing or more traditionally aesthetically pleasing form. So it's uh, definitely really good stuff here between that and uh, the number of subplots and mysteries that Ayala has given us. Uh, New Mutants has grown into a uh, must-read book, which is a very good thing. And Damien wraps up with, There's some great work here, and I can't wait for you to get to the next issue, as it's amazing and terrifying all at once. And, uh... By now, you know we've been there, and uh, yes, you are correct, and I can't wait to uh, discuss your feelings on that issue as well. Thank you so much for writing in. Uh, Next, we got Meal talking about Excalibur number 21. 
Meal says, Excalibur 21. I'm going to preface this by saying that while I have lived in America since I was a toddler, my father is Welsh and lived in the UK for the majority of his life. My mother is Italian and moved to London when she was in her early 20s, which is where they met. I consider myself Italian-British, not American. So, when Teeny Howard decided she wanted Britain to drop its agreement with Krakoa, you could hear the comic screaming, Look, we're an analogy of Brexit. Because, <laughs> you know, it wasn't like Brexit was a vote that the British people voted in that was narrowly split, and for four-plus years people have been complaining and discussing it. I mean, you can really tell Teeny Howard is not British and doesn't know much about the British people. It's bad. <laughs> and that's something we've discussed. Uh, not the Brexit thing, because I, I am woefully and willfully ignorant. On that kind of thing, I, I don't know much about current events. I, I find that it uh, makes me a much happier felon not to know. But uh, we have talked a lot about uh, the way Teeny Howard portrays um, the British people, British government, uh, all every, basically British culture. Um, I think it's the, uh, the inch-deep, mile-wide thing. And I think I compared it not too long ago to a friend of mine talking, like equating the entire nation of Japan with giant robots and Godzilla. You know, it's like those are the things that, you know, the layperson knows, right, about a, a country they may not have ever been to, don't know a whole lot about. They know certain things, and I feel like Teeny Howard knows certain things and has not bothered to get any kind of a deeper understanding or knowledge on, on the subject here, probably figuring that a lot of the readers won't ever call her on it. Um, I mean, that's the cult of personality around a comic creator. If you uh, dare criticize, you are uh, labeled something uh, very unfavorable, and any of your critiques are immediately dismissed as, as hate speak. So that's just the, uh, the comics world that we're living in right now. Mill continues, I also hate how mean to everyone is to Shatterstar. Like, Star doesn't deserve this. On the positive side, I like the conversation between Rogue and Gambit. Now, I only hope that people were being mean to Shatterstar because of uh, whatever that curse was that the Morrigan cast. I was, I was hoping that it was a continuation of that. I suppose we'll find out in due time. Um, and Rogue and Gambit, I mean, they're, they're old favorites of mine. I, I always enjoy seeing them on panel here. It's weird that they're going to be splitting them up. But, uh, you know, from what we learned from Chris Claremont's Instagram not too long ago, he might be doing a Gambit series. So we, uh, we might have a reason for why they're being you know, separated, at least temporarily. Again, I guess that'll just be another wait and see. Mill continues, I really want to like this book. I would love a book that's based in Britain, and I love Gambit and Jubilee, but I just can't. I feel very much the same. Um, when I saw the cover for the first issue of uh, Excalibur and seeing that it had basically, you know, the, the core of the blue team uh, from back in the early 90s here, Gambit, Rogue, Jubilee, Psylocke, or I, I mean Captain Britain now, but uh, back in the day, Psylocke, uh, I was excited. I, I was thinking that this could be a just a lot of fun, and it uh, it really hasn't been. It's been wildly uneven, um, very disjointed, and uh, just not all that fun to read. I'm hopeful that maybe, maybe, eventually we'll get through with this other world stuff. We'll get done with the the Coven Akaba, and I don't know. Maybe maybe Alan Davis will come back. <laughs> Maybe he'll start writing it. Maybe when Claremont's done with Gambit, he'll come over and uh, do some Excalibur. Not that, not that Claremont's been uh, all that spectacular on the team books in the past uh, twenty odd years. But uh, 
a you know any old port in the storm, right? Um, now Mule wraps up with until it's retconned that Franklin is a mutant again. Be mine, X lapsed, and uh, well, I got some sneaking suspicions, but uh, they're they're founded in nothing, so I won't even bother. But uh, thank you so so much for writing in, Mule. It's great to have you on board here, and I always look forward to your comments. Uh, finally, we got one from our friend Chris Bailey, who is uh, tipping me off here. He says that he's listening to X-Corp number two, and he says, I think Kevin Feig is pronounced Feige or 5G. Uh, or 5G. Maybe he's a, a cell phone uh, uh, plan or network. Um, apologies to Kevin Feige or Feige. Mea culpa. Um, this is the first time I ever heard of you. So <laughs> I apologize for pronouncing your name about four or five different ways. I'm sure none of them are correct, but uh, yeah, you ain't listening anyway. But I, I apologize all the same. Finally, let's hop over to um, one of the Facebook questions here. I had mentioned that I've been asking some questions in various X-Men and Marvel-related groups about the current year X-Men books. And here are some answers from our new friend David over in the Age of the X-Men group. Now, the questions I asked were thoughts on Mora being a mutant, also thoughts on the Resurrection Protocols, and what were your feelings on The Crucible? So let's get into it. David says, regarding Mora being a mutant, This one was a bit different and and out of left field for me, but I didn't mind it too much. It's a smart and creative twist. It actually reminded me of a twist for the character of Bink in the Piers Anthony book A Spell for Chameleon, which is the first book of his Xanth series. It does make me wonder about how much time looping our standard 616 is experienced, though, but I admit I might be overthinking that part. And no, I, I don't think you are overthinking it here because uh, it's actually something I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about, and I probably should have. I was so overly concerned with exactly what was going to stay and what was going to go, and how uh, the how the X Men canon was going to look when the dust settled here. Uh, when I was reading those early uh, issues of Hawks and Pox, I was just like, "Well, did uh, did you know Executioner Song happen? Did uh, did the Fall of the Mutants happen? What what, what you know? I didn't know." What was going to be retconned into being different lives of Mora here Totally missing the forest for the trees And not understanding that everything happened here But your point is well taken here Time looping could be a very interesting thing And, and probably a very Hickman-y thing to explore To have uh, things like anomalies from different lives Just like overlapping over one another Seeing something from Mora's third life in current life it, it's very interesting to consider, and I wonder if that's something that they could pull off, and if they uh, if they tried to, I wonder how uh, how well it would be received, because uh, there's a lot of opportunities there, not just in the X-Men books, either. I mean, this is like an opportunity to add lore to basically every Marvel property, so I think uh, that's very, very interesting, and um, now I'm overthinking it, <laughs> but uh, no, that's really, really cool food for thought, and I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on that as well. David continues regarding the resurrection protocols. I have to admit I'm not a fan of this. I mean, the idea is a brilliant way for them to bring back characters from the past, and I'm happy they didn't just do a hand wave and say it just is, and they actually gave us an explanation for how it works. As has been addressed in Way of X, it has made many mutants arrogant and reckless because of their hypothetical immortality. And yes, thank goodness for a book like Way of X to uh, kind of draw a line under this and be like, you know, there is a... Something sinister and off-putting about this, and and I agree. It's a, uh, it's very very clever the way they're doing this here. I love the concept of the five um, because 
they're taking some characters here whose powers aren't really... I mean, look at a character like Gold Balls, right? <laughs> he's, he's a joke of a character, but now he's a power player on Krakoa here. Uh, just the... The evolution of gold balls to egg is uh, one of those, uh, you know, chicken stuff to chicken salad sort of things, right? Just wildly clever, and I, I really like the way they went about this. And um, for all of my misgivings about it, I think the existence of Way of X is really helping to really helping to smooth that over for me because all the questions we have, all the misgivings we have, all the distrust we have in the process. That's all being brought to light now, so we're kind of vindicated and validated in, in our uh, in our more divisive opinions on the uh, on the topic. So I, I'm I'm in I'm in. Now David continues the Crucible. I absolutely hate this. What I hate more is how the Krakoans have made it into a rite of passage and a public spectacle. This is one of the things that have changed our beloved mutant character's core essence that I personally disagree with. And yes, the Crucible is very very divisive here. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with it um, for many of the same reasons that you mentioned here. Um, the public spectacle, the barbarism, the fact that people are cheering for the death of their friends, brothers, sisters, neighbors. Uh, it's just very, very off-putting. And as you mentioned here, it does change the core of the characters, which just makes me say again, thank goodness we have a book like Way of X who's shining a light on this and making us feel not so alone. It's like we feel smarter for having read Way of X. And that we noticed all this stuff. We've been asking these questions from the start. And it's just so very cool to see these questions brought to light. And like I said, I have a love-hate with it. Um, it's very, very off-putting. It's very uncomfortable to look at. But it just provides so much conversation. I've loved every bit of our dialogue about The Crucible here on the show over the course of the past several hundred <laughs> episodes at this point. The Crucible is always going to be something that I'm going to come back to and want to discuss. So, hey, any thoughts on The Crucible? As it's an evolving and growing thing at this point, I want to hear thoughts. I'd love to uh, enter into a dialogue and have a discussion about uh, what we like, what we hate, what makes us nervous, what makes us cheer. Just all the interesting stuff that is The Crucible. But thank you so much for uh, writing in those answers, David, and I hope to see you uh, sometime in the future. So thank you so much. Now, speaking of which, I'd love to hear from all of you in the future. And uh, if you'd like to be heard in the future, it's uh, pretty easy to get a hold of me. You can find me several different places. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Last hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join the conversation on Facebook. Our group is 90s X-Men, and we're having, some, uh, we're having some fun over there every single day, and I'd love to see you there as well. Finally, for the archives and all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere that the internet aggregates noise and sound. And while you're there, if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to uh, spread the word. Share the show, tell a friend or two, yada, yada, yada. But that's all I got today. I would like to thank you all so much for allowing me to be part of your day. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.